Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Art Purcell, the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets since, I, since college. I've served on feature films, shorts, and commercials and corporate videos. As a filmmaker, I've made about a dozen shorts and features, either producing or directing, and I am just finishing up post on my first feature film as a writer-director called The Alternate. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer-director, producer, and casting director with two features under my belt. I'm also a former film critic and a current distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. And this week, well, oh my sh- God, we've hit 300 episodes. Yay! <laughs> Liz is dancing. And to celebrate, we found a really amazing guest to come on the show, Sev Ohanian, the producer with the Midas Touch, as Liz likes to say, who served as co-producer on Fruitvale Station, then produced and EP'd about a dozen indie features before getting his uh, getting to his co-writing and producing debut with the Sundance hit Searching, which he followed up with a Hulu original film, Run, star- starring Sarah Paulson. So that's pretty incredible, but there's more. Now he just formed a production company with Ryan Coogler and he served as EP on Space Jam, A New Legacy, coming out this summer. And his newest film, Judas and the Black Messiah, which he was also an EP on, is streaming on HBO Max right now. And I saw it. It is devastating. This movie is incredible. It's really good, but it's so sad. Um, I knew the story beforehand because I had actually worked with, um, you know, Bobby Seal, co-founder of the Black Panther Party. So I kind of had been hearing the story for a long time. And then to see it in a movie, it was like, wow, crazy. We didn't even get to talk to him about the Marvel show that he just signed on to do with his new production company, uh, Back to Sev. And I was like, can I just <laughs> ask one small question? He's like, no. But this is a very exciting interview, but don't go away after the interview because Liz and I um, have a very special and I think meaningful Get Shorty and another installment of You've Got Mail as always. But Liz and I are going to do something very special for our 300th episode. So uh, I'm going to stop talking and jabbering and let's get to our talk with Sev Ohanian. Sev, we're in my mind, we're titling this show Sev Ohanian um, being King Midas. So just take that for what you will. Um, So can you give us the elevator pitch for Run? Ooh, the elevator pitch for Run. Okay, cool. Uh, I don't know if this is the elevator pitch, but this is how I pitched it. Run is a story about a young girl who is many things. She's incredibly curious. She's incredibly intelligent. She's very skilled with her hands, has a curiosity about all things science. She's many things, but one thing that she's not is healthy. Growing up, ever since she was born, she's had heart problems, lung problems, she can hardly breathe, and most severely, she cannot walk. Um, She's been paralyzed since birth from the waist down. Um, Essentially, she needs 24-hour medical attention just to stay alive, but luckily for her, her mom is there. Her mom takes care of her, gives her meds, does her PT exercises, she's her cheerleader. More than anything, though, her mom is her friend. All they have is each other. And they make it work, you know, and, and daughter is, is almost 18, is excited for college, wants to go be independent, maybe meet a boy or two, and just live her life. Everything is perfect, except one day, the tiniest, tiniest and tiniest of details goes awry and daughter unravels a tiny string that just keeps snowballing into a bigger thing. And ultimately, she has this incredible revelation that maybe she's not sick. 
Maybe she's never been sick. Maybe something has been making her sick or more likely someone. And all signs, of course, point to her mother. And we realize that we're actually watching in the first half of this movie, a Hitchcockian psychological thriller in which you have no idea what's happening. And then at a midpoint, the movie shifts and becomes a prison break movie. But instead of a prison, it's a house. And instead of a hardened criminal, it's a young girl who just wants her independence. And the key to her solving her situation is not how she's going to escape, but rather undercover, like un, under, sorry, understanding the underlying reason of why this is what it is. Run is a story that examines love in a family and what happens when you love too much. It was like film so. school in a box. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, we, we practice that a lot. <laughs> so how many days did you shoot Run? Man, we shot Run ultimately, I think, for 34 days. And it was, um, you know, if you've seen the movie or if you if you can tell from the little pitch, it's a relatively small movie. It, it is a studio movie, but I would argue it's probably the smallest a studio movie could ever be. Um, and we designed it, you know, by design to be essentially two characters in one location for the most part. So the fact that it's that many days is kind of astonishing. You know, we did a movie called Searching that was 13 days. And I was a person on a movie called Fruvel Station that was 20 days. So why would run which is, you know, arguably smaller in scale than these movies be such a longer schedule. And the, and the reason is because our director, Anish Chaganti, you know, and on our team, as you know, as, as a goal was to kind of make something that would feel a little bit more like classic Hollywood, like more of a throwback to real Hitchcock movies and stuff like that. And those kinds of films really kind of demand a lot more of like a systematic type of filmmaking where every shot has to be really meaningful and everything has to be planned to a T. And rather than kind of like, hosing down the coverage, which is what we refer to when we have multiple cameras just getting whatever they can. And, you know, we were making that film with the studio called Lionsgate. And, you know, it was a hard time getting them to agree to such a longer shooting schedule. And ultimately, I believe we were only greenlit with 30 days. And our arrangement was if by week two, we hadn't used up any of our overtime budget, they would grant us one more day. And we would now have 31 days. And by week four, they would, you know, give us another another day and so forth. And we kept, you know, inching and inching forward and kept barely saving money. And we got all 34 days of shooting. Ironically, there's like entire days of filming that we cut out of the edit of the movie, if only we knew, but you know, it was, it was a good time and a very difficult shoot and really proud of what we accomplished in those 34 days. Uh, what was the rough budget or what can you tell us about the budget? I probably can't say much about the budget. Um, but it's, you know, it was not much, you know, a couple of million, I'll say that, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, definitely under 10 million, um, which obviously like is a lot for indie films. And, you know, my, you know, I can tell you the budget for searching, which was $880,000. I know that very intimately because every dollar we really mattered, but, but with run, you know, once we, you know, in our case, once we were able to graduate from, you know, indie filmmakers to making our first studio movie, like the beautiful thing is we had to be union. So we were able to, you know, uh, hire people and pay them like really good wages that they deserve and and um and you know make sure that all you know we wasn't one person doing seven people's jobs which is usually what I was doing like we we're able to kind of have a proper production crew and the way that scales up is like you basically if you're making a new movie you're not going to really make something for under four million like it's really hard to even just get that out so um you know it was a tight budget and we we really did a lot with that money I'm really proud of our entire team, we squeezed every cent. And how long did you spend working on the film from, you know, its inception to it's being released? Totally. We wrote Run. Oh, we had the idea for Run while we were editing our first movie that I, that I co-wrote and Anish uh, co-wrote and directed and Alex Sabian produced with us. 
Um, and searching was a very long process in editing. It was like a year of editing that film. And we had a lot of spare time in the editing room, you know, me and each Natalie, that we were able to like think about what would be our next movie together. Um, and if you're not familiar, searching is a film that takes place entirely on computer screens, kind of like what we're, what we're doing right now. And we knew that if we wanted to ultimately make our next movie, which is kind of like our third movie together, which is a huge budget movie, we would need to kind of justify that Anish could direct a real movie. So our idea was like, okay, after searching, let's have a movie that's real actors, real camera, not computer screens, but still contained, still lower budget. Because if searching comes out and doesn't do good business, people are not going to really give us a lot of money. And we love the themes of family. Like if you guys have seen Searching, it's a very sentimental, you know, very loving family depiction. And we really can't do horror. One time Anish and I tried to write a horror movie and I swear to God, we got too scared. We literally stopped. Um, but we love thrillers. And like, we're like, what if we do a thriller and kind of center around a family? And this, this, you know, we were very much inspired by real life instances of what Run is essentially about, which is Munchausen by proxy. Um, but in the real life stories um, of that tragic, awful situation, usually the, the young child at the center of it is, is, you know, a victim and they often need to be rescued or, or, you know, or oftentimes they don't get rescued and it's a tragedy. Um, in our case, we were like, why don't we empower that character and give them agency, make them the hero that no one has to rescue. Um, we saw it as an amazing opportunity for casting authentically a young actress out there who would have a disability, but not let that in any way slow them down, either physically in the way that the role demands them, and especially like just performatively and, and kind of like having them stand their ground. And we also knew that, you know, business-wise, we couldn't, you know, get a movie greenlit just based on that character. But if we make it a two-hander and write a really juicy role for somebody like a Sarah Paulson, <laughs> we can maybe cast somebody like Sarah Paulson. And then we freaking cast Sarah Paulson, which is insane. Um, and, and, you know, we wrote that script for about, you know, on and off nine months. We're really, really slow writers, Anish and I, usually because while we're writing, he's directing something or I'm producing something. But also we, um, by design, we love taking our time because, and I mean, you know, Liz, you're a writer too. Like, you know what it's like, if, if you write a couple of days and you take a couple of days off and then you revisit it and you're like, oh, yikes, that was awful. Like we, we love that process. And sometimes we meet only once a day or once every other day. And then we'll meet only for a short amount of time in that short spurt. So we had written half the script before we went to Sundance for searching. And I remember on the flight to Sundance, we had printed the first half and we were doing notes on each other's pages. And then after Sundance, we wrote the last half. And then, you know, we went out with it um, with their agents and, and got it set up at Lionsgate. So, you know, we, we worked on the script for like nine months and then from that point until we were done filming was another six months. And then we edited for six months. But the problem was the movie was supposed to be released much, much earlier. And we couldn't make it happen because of the pandemic. Um, and we pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And ultimately, we ended up, you know, instead of coming out theatrically, we ended up selling at least the U.S. domestic rights to Hulu and honestly had like an amazing release in November. Like we, it, it was incredible. Like to this day, people online are finding the movie and reaching out to us and doing fan art. It's, it's insane. Like it was so cool. Who knows what would have happened without, you know, all of that, but it was all in all from inception of idea to release of idea. I would say about a year and a half, 2017, Jeez, no, 2017, 2020. Uh, yeah. Two and a half years. Wow. 
but a lot of that was waiting. <laughs> I love how you said that you're slow writers and you got it done in nine months. Uh, well oh, done. That's a, that's a, that's a speedy, <laughs> slow writer. Um, how, I'm, I'm just used to people doing it like in three months and I'm like, how do you do that? Like, <laughs> How big was your crew? I don't recall, but I, I would say probably close to 70 people, not including like post-production, obviously. We, we shot in, in, in a city called Winnipeg, Canada, which was, you know, an extremely cold place. It's, it's a bit of an out of the way area. It's a very popular filming location nowadays because the tax incentive is unreal. And if anyone doesn't know what tax incentives are, it's basically, you know, you, you agree to shoot a movie somewhere and, you know, you're essentially hiring local, you know, citizens and you're, you're paying for rentals from the local area. You're, you're like helping the economy in return. They'll often give you back a percentage of what you're spending. And with Winnipeg, it was insane. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we, uh, you know, we had this 90% crew from Winnipeg. We flew in our DP, Hillary Sparrow from New York, uh, Anish, myself, Natalie, and my assistant, and mine and Natalie's assistant, Desi Gallegos, we came from LA and that was it. Um, fully Canadian, you know, uh, company. We, we were, we were, we had a day off for Canadian Thanksgiving and we had a day off for American Thanksgiving. It was kind of cool. <laughs> and then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was it to make this one? Man, it was, it was pretty difficult. Um, I'm the guy who, who quits producing at the end of every project and reluctantly start again. And then I quit again right before we start shooting. But then on the first shot of the first day, I'm like back at it. Run was a tough one. I mean, we, you know, it was, it was challenging because to no one's fault, when we started off with that film to when the movie came out, multiple other projects had come out that were like, tonally and, and arguably thematically similar to ours. There's a Hulu series called The Act, um, which is supposed to be really good, which kind of covers, a, it's kind of a more, uh, you know, true to true life depiction of a, of a similar case that, um, that had come out while we were shooting or editing ours. And I think there was one or two other things. It, oh, I think it was a plot point in an HBO series. And we were suddenly not, you know, so much of our pitch, as you heard, is like, how cool, like somebody who's not, who's not aware that they're being made to be sick. Like, oh, wait, there's multiple things that have come out like that. So in editing, and, you know, especially it was our first experience, like working with the studio closely, like it became apparent that the movie needed to change from what we had in mind. And like initially, like I talked about, we deleted so many days of shooting. The movie was a much slower burn, a much, a little bit more grounded and, um, you know, like there was a lot, a longer period of discovery longer. It was almost like I used to describe the first half of the movie, like a cold war an arms race between this daughter and mother, as far as like escalating tension of like, who's doing what we took a lot of that out. And if you see the movie, like one of the things that people love it, like, you know, I think really praise it for rightfully so is how tight it is. Like it, there's no fat in the movie, arguably a lot of that fat was what we were going for. Um, we also ended up, um, <laughs> We ended up kind of, we get like, you know, kind of really ratcheting tension in a way, like to make it feel more cinematic. You know, these, these are a lot of notes we got from the studio that, again, I think were fantastic notes because it, it makes the movie work. But like a lot of Sarah's Paulson's performance in the last half of the movie, like was, you know, we had takes, you know, by design that were like a little bit more neutral, a little bit more nuanced. And it was like, nope, go for the one that's, you know, big. Like, let's make this thing feel cinematic and epic and not, you know, a television drama. Um and a lot of other changes like that. I think that that stuff was extremely 
extremely difficult. Um, a lot of those really stressful editing choices. And then, you know, we were, we were doing a lot, you know, with, with the crew that, um, you know, we were asking a lot of the crew, like we have a lot of kind of like stunt sequences. And I remember early on, like being asked by people on our team, like, Hey guys, do we need to have this, you know, the middle of the movie for anyone who sees it or, or can see it, like, is it kind of like this mission impossible esque um, stunt sequence in which a daughter is like hanging off the side of a building and like, we were being asked to tone it down. Can we do like maybe something less? And like, our whole point was like, guys, like this is the trailer of the movie, which we were wrong about. But like, we were like, this is huge. Like we want this to be like the centerpiece of the movie. Like people are gonna, like, why would we tone this down? Like, let's find something else to tone down. So it was it was a lot of, you know, typical creative, you know, producing challenges. But um, again, like we're so happy. Like the movie got incredibly well-received, great reviews. And um, just the fact that Kira Allen, who, you know, who we discovered for the role of the daughter of Chloe, like it, it launched her career and she's, she's like a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, I can't think of a better outcome for all of the, all of the stress that you guys are talking about, but, but yeah. I want to go back in time a little bit just to set up uh, the rest of the conversation, because, you know, I know that you produced um, what I think is a micro budget feature before coming to film school. Right. Yes. Um, and then you came to USC and we met there um, and clearly you're a powerhouse now, but I also just want to talk about the evolution of you being a writer and kind of coming out the gate hot with all these amazing projects, but then maybe even finding some vulnerability and coming out as a writer. So when did you, I mean, have you always been a writer, Sev, or were you like, was that kind of this thing that was festering and just like ready to break out after you made it big? Dude, what an incredible question. Thanks, Liz. Um, I was always a wannabe writer. You know, I still feel like I'm a bit of a wannabe writer, but you know, when I was growing up, like, I think my mother is the one who really instilled in me a love of storytelling and, and, you know, just the arts. Like she, you know, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country when I was, you know, four months old, but, but still, you know, growing up in a house of immigrants and English is my second language and all that. My mom would, you know, take me and my sister to the local library and force us to get 10 books and then tell us if we read those 10 books, she'll be, then, you know, take us to, to the park and have fun. And we would read the 10 books, we'd get in the car, and then she would take us right back to the library to get 10 more books. Like she was one of those, you know, amazing mothers who like really instilled in us this like love of storytelling and just kind of opening your eyes to the world. So I grew up wanting to be a children's author. Like I was like, I better not change my mind one day and become an adult author. Like it better remember to be a children's <laughs> author. I totally let down my young self with that. But, um, I then realized that it was like really tough to be an author. And like, it's kind of like, there's too risky of a job. So then I thought about film and I'm like, man, that's even riskier. And I was in high school. So I decided to write journalism instead. I became a you know student newspaper like guy. I was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper because I thought that was the stablest of all the types of writing. And then the internet happened. And then I realized that that was even, like I was working at the LA Times as an intern and they were all scared and asking me what a blog is. So I was like, all right, maybe I shouldn't do journalism. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like when I was, when I was going to college at UC San Diego, um, studying journalism, this is like 2006 or so I started making little YouTube videos making fun of my parents and my family and my, and my culture out of love, like make kind of poking fun at the Armenian culture. And it was my dad's own video camera, just me and my friends. And I put them on YouTube for my friends to see. And to my surprise, they became like internationally known. Like if you know any Armenians and you ask them, they will have at least heard of these videos, if not seen them and if not quote them to you, it's crazy. And I decided to make a movie based on these videos called My Big Fat Armenian Family, which I wrote, I directed, I produced, I shot. I, I always say like, I did every job except for makeup and then the makeup artist quit. So I did that too. It's awful makeup. <laughs> 
And um, I made this movie for 800 bucks. And it's kind of like this like fun story about like really Americanized young kids and really old country Armenianized parents and the culture clash on a road trip. And it's funny and heartwarming and everything in between. That movie like blew up and it made, you know, I, I sold tickets, I sold DVDs. It, it made me like an insane amount of money, which was not at all my business plan. But more importantly, it kind of brought tons of people like from my Armenian culture, like to show up and empower me and kind of encourage me to like, okay, maybe I should pursue this risk be damned. So when I got into USC, which is where we met, like, um, I wanted to be a director because I think that's what everyone thinks they want to do when they enter the industry. And I learned very quickly, it wasn't for me. Like I wasn't as creatively satisfied on set directing. Like I, I found myself wanting to be more of a big picture guy as a producer. And, and, you know, admittedly, I, I probably have severely undiagnosed ADHD. Like I couldn't just work on one project at a time. I needed to have like 20. I was like, oh, producers can do that. Amazing. But yeah, secretly, I wanted to write. And when I was at film school, I think it's so important to like, you know, especially at that level, you know, directors are often the ones that will initiate a project. It's really rare for a student film to be like, I'm going to produce this movie. I want you to direct it. It's usually like, this is my passion. I'm going to direct a student film. Will you please come produce it? And I was weary of being like a multi-hyphenate to be like, well, Sev is the writer producer and that guy is the producer producer. Why would I hire the guy that's a writer producer when I can hire the full producer? So I was like, I'm just a producer. And I was secretly not wanting anyone to know I was a writer. And when I graduated film school um, and I got, you know, I got the opportunity to work on uh, Fruitvale Station with Ryan Krugler, you know, one of our fellow classmates. After that point, you know, I think I came back from Sundance um, I got approached by Anish Chaganti, who's to this, you know, my writing partner now. And he was a student in a class that I was a TA in. And, um, I remember really liking his, his taste, his attitude, his, his sensibility when it comes to storytelling, he had asked me out to drinks and I was hanging out with them and he was kind of pitching me five ideas he had come up with that he wanted to write as a script. And it was one of those things that I had always, um, encouraged the students to do, like come up with ideas all the time. He pitched me five ideas. I loved one of them. I was like, dude, I think this is a phenomenal idea. And he was like, dude, that's actually my favorite too, which I was like, oh my God, we're on the same page. Years later, he admitted he lied to me and he was going to say any of those is his favorite. But um, <laughs> love that our relationship started off that way. And, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, while I was still very heavily focusing on producing these little budget, no budget, micro budget indies, Anish and I would have text messages or phone calls or emails about that project. And the more we were getting involved with it, the more I was like, dude, like, we should just work on this together and we should just write this together. And he was like, hell yeah. And neither of us knew anything of what we were doing. And we were writing this like $100 million, like swashbuckling action adventure thing. It's called Animal Heist about the world's most dangerous or the world's most skilled thief uh, has to forget all of his own rules when he's brought onto the wildest heist possible, stealing a 400 pound gorilla from the LA Zoo to save its life. And we were convinced. I was like, mom, dad, like I'm about to make hundreds of thousands of dollars selling the script. Just FYI, I'm about to be rich as F. And my dad's like, I'll just buy it from you right now for 200 bucks. Me and Anish were like, what? How disrespectful, man. We're about to be billionaires. Like we're not going to buy you a Ferrari. And then we never sold the script. And my, I asked my dad for the $200. He says, no, <laughs> like the deal was limited. But, um, but yeah, we, we had an amazing time writing that script. You know, that, that script won a bunch of awards. We, um, we actually had a chance to pitch it directly to somebody at Disney at the time, but it didn't make sense for them because they were, you know, they, they had this Ivan the Gorilla thing. They were trying not to make movies that kind of made zoos look bad because they owned a couple. And um, we knew that we, we needed to write something smaller. I'm like, dude, I'm an indie producer. Anish was an incredibly talented director with a lot of emphasis in commercials. We had made a, 
a short film called Seeds that had blown up and kind of gone to, uh, got any shot job at Google. So we were like, what can we write that's smaller? And then eventually um, searching is, is kind of like what we wrote. But by the point, by the time Anish and I had started to write searching, as an indie producer, I was the guy who was reading every script I can get my hands on. You know, at the time, agents were not sending me any scripts. Um, or if they were, it was after everybody in town had already said no. Um, but I was eager. Like, I was the guy, like, if my Uber driver overheard me being a film person, I'd be like, you have a script? I'll read it. Like, I literally was that guy. And my mentality kind of became as an indie producer, like, I was so desperate to find good material that I would open every script as if it was going to be the greatest script of all time. Like, I would, like, manifest in my head, this script is going to be so good. I'm going to produce it. I'm going to make all this, like, money. I'm going to go laugh at my dad because he didn't believe in me and like all this stuff. And I would let the script disappoint me, which I don't know if that's how everyone reads it. I've heard people oftentimes do the opposite where they let the script impress them. But for me, it was like, okay, I love the script. Amazing first line. Oh, that's odd. There's a weird dialogue over here. Oh, that <laughs> formatting is kind of off. And I would kind of like, I would be very conscious of every time as I was reading what points I would start to be a little bit less and less impressed. So when it came time for Anish and I to write, especially those early days, I was, I was very meticulous. I'm like, no, 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 we have to have this beat here. Cause I know what that reader is like on the other end, who's trying to find something good. They're going to not like this. And, you know, another thing for me was as, as a junior producer, cause since, you know, in the years after Fruval, I was, I was really lucky to be involved in so many movies um, you know, feedback screenings is like a classic thing that, you know, you do in film, you know, you, you, uh, you know, you screen your movie, you ask questions, and then you, you know, you, and then you have edit, you know, edit decisions you can make. But so often, I could find myself, I'm watching producers ask questions of our of our feedback audience. And I'm just like, man, like 90% of these notes, we cannot do because the movie shot, we can't go reshoot anything. And I'm just like, why are we not asking these questions before we shot the movie? Um, so I, so I realized I'm like, dude, we should be doing feedback on our script. And I, I know this is a thing that exists for writing groups and stuff, but for me, it was so much more than that because also as an indie producer, so often I would read a script and maybe decline the opportunity to work on it. But, you know, I'd be like, Hey, I'm happy to give you my thoughts on it. So I would get on a call, share a couple of thoughts on the script after two minutes, I would say, that's all I got. And they would say, thank you so much. Have a great day. And I remember being like, man, it's kind of crazy. I'm a virgin mind that just read the script for the first time, why would you not interrogate me? Kind of how we do in these things. <laughs> and, and what I started developing with the niche was like when we started working together was kind of like exactly that. Um, we came up with this system that basically um, we would send the script to people um, who, uh, who would read the script for the first time. And basically we would set a call with them for like 45 minutes where we would just basically ask them thousands and thousands and thousands of questions. Like maybe not thousands, probably closer to like 200. Um, do you guys want me to show you? I can even share my screen if this is helpful to you guys. Uh, sure. Yes. Let me just allow that. Okay, now you can share. All right, check this out. <laughs> um, so for all you YouTube people, you're getting a, an extra extra little bit here. <laughs> so like literally this is, um, you know, we, we sent, this is the search for, uh, this is our searching scriptment. We basically, you know, we would ask general questions and this is me and Anish typing as they were reading. Or, I'm sorry, as they were giving us answers over the phone. Like what was your initial thoughts? What did you think worked the best? What worked the least? We even had them score it. And then we would, you know, take this, these numbers and find the means. 
what was slow, what was fast, what was confusing, how would you describe the movie, what rating would you give it, um, and stuff like that. And then we go into macro notes. You know, like these two characters, what was their arc like for you? This character, what was their arc like for you? You know, like this character, did their backstory make sense? This character was your speculation on things like that. And then my favorite was the micro notes. Um, little tiny things, you know, like, um, I don't know, like Pam's home computer background is the original first day of school selfie. Did you remember this from the opening montage? Yes. <laughs> you know, like it's important because as you're reading, I want to make sure like every beat is crystal clear. Did Peter's behavior in the scene on page 30 make you feel like he was a bad guy? And his, this, you know, this gentleman said, yes, I believe he was a villain and so forth and so forth. Um, you know, we, we asked so many questions. This is, seems like a, probably a later draft that we asked less questions, but, um, it was incredibly helpful for us to just interrogate people because when you read a script, you are probably not conscious of all of the things that you think are right or wrong about it. You know, you don't have like, you're not really thinking like that, but that information is inside of you. And I think as writers, we wanted to just mine it. We wanted to get in there. And I think it helped us make sure we were writing a script, especially something like searching, which is a mystery which is so important that the audience is not, you know, you're not losing the audience, but at the same time, they're also not ahead of you. So we were able to really like fine tune and calibrate the reading experience for the script. So I think all of these, you know, you asked me what it was like, what's my arc as a writer? It was really, you know, not having a lot of confidence to come out about in the early days. And then later using, I think, some of the skills as a producer and the insight that I had and, you know, taking that perspective and applying it to us as a, as, as a writing team and hopefully writing something that I think would make it easier for someone to read and never, you know, be disappointed in a way that you might otherwise be. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> it does. I have a question. So where do you find the readers to read your script? Are these just from your network, people that you know, like, and, and how do you set it up? Do you say, oh, could you please read the script and give us your feedback? But, but don't, don't actually write it down. We'll call you and we're going to do a little interview or something. Exactly. It's basically, you know, for each movie, we probably only talk to like 10 or 12 people with, with, you know, in this way. And like, you know, the first person to read our scripts is our producer and Ali Kasabian. And like, we don't need to ask her questions. She, she will make all of the issues in the script known to us without us asking. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's often fellow screenwriters. It's people with story tastes that we love and a couple of, you know, average people like non-filmmakers in there as well. Um, it's not really ever really the same people either. Um, and we just kind of make it clear. It's like, hey, this is going to be a big ask of you. You're going to read the script probably for like two hours, and then we're going to take another hour of your time. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's not it's not an overly complicated pro you know process. It's a nice, it's an extremely detailed list of questions that you're asking. Like you're really honing in on like the problems that you think are worried about in your script to try to figure out like if it's actually working or not, which I think is really smart. And now I'm wishing I did that on my feature. Well, there you go. I mean, look, the thing is, it's not, we don't have to come up with the questions. Like the questions are, I mean, I guess the blessing of Anish and I being a writing partnership is the questions are just arguments we've had, you know, dude, I don't think that she should be saying this on the scene. Like, dude, you're stupid. She should be. All right. Well, we'll find out who's a stupid one. And then nine times out of 10, Anish is a stupid one, dude, because I'm always, I'm kidding. But, but basically like all those you know disagreements we have, which is like, dude, this line is cheesy. I don't know, man, I think we need it. All right, well, let's see. Like, hey, like, I don't think people are going to remember when they get to the scene, you know, that that woman was the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, let's find out, you know, like if, if, if people don't remember, we'll address it. If people do remember, we can move on. So it's always kind of like, you know, it's, it's essentially all the things that we already have insecurities about. And sometimes it's things that both of us are not sure about. Um, and obviously, look, there is a danger to writing or making films that are just purely 
um, I don't know what the, you know, what's the word like focus group tested or whatever, you know, in, in the big leagues in these movies, you know, big student movies, like everything is determined by NRG screenings. Like when you take real audiences in Vegas and whatever, and have them watch, but what we're doing is not that, you know, we're not having them tell us what to do. We're just truly trying to see whether something is working or not. And like we're, our fan, our sample groups are like three or four people per draft. So it's not like we're really taking an average of anything, but just having a sense of whether something is even remotely registering or not makes all the difference to us. You said uh, a little bit earlier that as a junior producer, people were not sending you scripts. And I've just got to assume that right now you're inundated with scripts and projects. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about that change from then to now and what you attribute that to. I mean, is it just the box office success of your works? Is it the networking? Is it the PGA? I mean, what what is the source of um, the upward trajectory for you? Yeah, and it, it's been an organic, you know, steady upstream, you know, of, of, of agents sending cool, you know, cool projects. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, I, I think it's always like, you know, I think after searching, I would get a lot of like, you know, lower budget thrillers, you know, like elevated genre kind of things. Um, and then, you know, I got involved, you know, with Ryan Coogler, we started a company called Proximity. We worked on um, a movie called Space Jam, A New Legacy, a movie called Judas and the Black Messiah, which comes out on Friday, um, February 12th. Um, and I think, you know, and then I think, you know, people started hearing good things about us. And, you know, we have, you know, we, I have my own agent, you know, I have an agent with our company, like, it just kind of naturally started happening. And like, I don't know, like, there's an argument to, to whether or not the quality is always, you know, gone up with, with the level of submissions going, the, the profile level going up. But you know, it's all, it's all a matter of taste. Um, I know that like with everything, the grass is always greener. Sometimes it's like, I, I just want to read a book for fun, but I can't because I have 20 scripts I got to read this weekend, but you know, it's always, it's always going to be that situation, you know, grass is greener. Um, I wanted to hear about um, kind of how you got started as a producer and, you know, how you got onto Fruitvale Station and then, you know, how from there you were able to start producing indie features because, you know, like a lot of people try to do that kind of thing and it doesn't necessarily work out. So I'm kind of curious, like, like how you were able to make that happen? Yeah, man. Like Fruitvale Station was an incredible experience because Ryan had graduated from USC a semester or two ahead of me. And he, you know, he basically reached out to me when he had the script pretty much done, had, had financiers, had producers, like, you know, real producers, not, not me. Um, and he wanted to bring on a group of people, friends of his from USC. It was myself. It was a guy named Gerard McMurray, who is an incredible director now, but at the time was also, in addition to being a good director, a great producer, um, and another another student named Hula Rose. And I think Ryan liked each of us for our own qualities. And you know, I think with me, I never worked with Ryan, but he he had heard good things about me from other students, from Gerard, from from even professors, that it made sense for us all to be on that film. And it was a movie where we were kind of all figuring it out for the first time, Ryan included. And, you know, like with ultimately producing just boils down to spot a problem, fix it, spot a future problem, prevent it, you know, like, and it became a very hands-on experience on that. After Fruitvale, you know, I had the high profile success of that film, but I was just a co-producer and, you know, like with anything, producers hire people who hires a producer and like, you know, why would, why would a producer want someone else who can maybe they might be threatened by, um, an incredible piece of advice I got from one of my professors at USC named, uh, named Gail Katz is uh she said you know to be a producer on a movie you have to basically be coming with something uh, either you're coming with a piece of talent which i had no connection to actors or or name directors or you're or you're coming having you know owned a piece of the material 
and I had no access to IP. You know, like I said, no one was sending me great scripts. Um, or, or you come with the money, and I certainly forgot to be born rich um, or have access to, to people that would write me big checks. Um, or she said, or you could be the producer that knows what they're doing. And she, she was kind of telling me, like, I, she's like, she's like I, Seth, I regret that I never really understood line producing and, like, what is physical production? And I was always the guy, like, you know, coming up in film school where I wasn't really the line producer either. And I, I was not the line producer on Fruitvale. And I was intimidated by numbers and spreadsheets and budgets and the responsibility. But what she was saying was, like, you can use that as the way in on these projects. So I taught myself how to line produce. And I started, you know, letting it be known that that's what I like to do and you know, people were looking for good line producers and people, you know, I, I just put it out there a little bit and people reached out to me and I was like, oh, I can line produce the hell out of your movie. Kind of not quite being sure I could. And, and, you know, for me, it was like, I take everything seriously and I'm, I'm a big believer in self-education. I taught myself, I read books on it. I did all the research and I started little by little line producing tiny, tiny movies. And my whole thing was on all these movies. I was very selective in, you know, I did a bunch of James Franco movies that, you know, USC was actually doing a collaboration with James Franco at the time. So I was able to kind of get in through that, that end. And I, I impressed James and his partner, Vince, and they brought me on to some other ones. Um, I met a guy at the Cannes Film Festival at a party uh, named Milan Chakraborty, who, who had heard good things about me from Ryan and thought that- Milan. Probably, oh yeah, I love Milan. And like, I think Milan probably had this misguided notion that if I was on his movie, it would elevate the movie, but because it's like a producer from Fruvel or whatever, and a line produced that. And like, um, but every time I was on these movies, like I was very selective in like trying to find a different, you know, Milan's was a faith-based movie. I did it. I did a Chinese movie. I did a, a digital movie trying to really understand every corner of the industry and, and often, you know, at no extra charge doing far more than my job, like trying to really help creatively and help in other ways and, and be involved but not be annoying. And, you know, for me searching, you know, and, and that was, you know, I was barely getting paid. You know, these movies are, as you guys probably know intimately well, there's not a lot of budgets for these movies, especially for the producers or the director. So it was like on the verge of being broke constantly. Like at one point I was offered a job to help produce YouTube makeup tutorial videos for six figures. And I was like, yo, I think I'm okay if that's my life. And like at the last <laughs> second, I didn't do it. Uh. <laughs> um, but I, I was desperate, you know, like, like all of us, it's really freaking hard. And, and, you know, like the, the, the golden era of the indie film market is probably in the nineties, you know, like when you can make a movie and sell it for a gajillion dollars, like that's not really happening. Um, but I kind of, in my mind was like, how do I graduate from being a line producer to being like a capital P creative producer? Um, and you know, my, per my personal feeling was writing. You know, like, cause if I'm, if I'm originating the material and developing it, I'm now, like Gail said, the person that's at least bringing the IP. Um, and when I did searching, it was, you know, like based on the, the reputation I had built over years of producing these other movies that many of which had gone to Sundance that I can get the financier to trust me to be the lead producer. Um, and then, you know, on that film, I was able to kind of finally apply all the skills and lessons I'd learned from other great producers I'd worked under and kind of do my own thing. Um, and I think after that, it was kind of like, it was kind of like, cool. Like everyone in town was like, yes, yeah, Seb is a real producer, whatever that means. And that led to more and more opportunities. Wow. Amazing. I know we have to get to our final five questions, but I also know that Alric and I have like 30,000 questions for you before that. So I just want to check in with Alric. Alric, do you want to throw in one final question before we. I, I have to ask about Space Jam. I am a huge Space Jam fan. And I don't know if you could talk about Space Jam and all the, the, the new one, but um, I would just love to hear like how you got a, 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 on that movie and then what, what your role was as an executive producer. Yeah, man, dude, same, same. Um, you know, when Ryan and I were 
were uh, were talking early days of, of, you know, forming proximity with me, Ryan and, and Zinzi Kugler, like, it was like, all right, so what are the projects that we want to start with? And, you know, the first one was Judas and the Black Messiah, which, you know, opens three days from when we're recording this podcast. And it was like, amazing, like, I'm all in hell, yeah, like, shedding light on the Black Panther party. And you know, what happened with Pro and amazing. I'm like, all right, Ryan, what else? He's like, oh, and Space Jam 2. I was like, okay, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Like, that is a very different kind of movie. And, you know, what was amazing was like, it was, you know, the movie had was so in its infancy at the time. But one thing that was clear was like, the idea was to do something that would be far more than what would be expected. You know, like, it's not just going to be like, you know, a sequel to the Michael Jordan Space Jam, like it should be some kind of evolution of that and something really cool. And, and, you know, LeBron is such a different type of athlete. He's, he's, you know, like, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I've become a LeBron James fan, I think, because he's just an amazing human being. Um, it was amazing. And, you know, as an, as an EP, I was, I was a producer on the movie, you know, and heavily involved in development and many, 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 many sleepless nights in prep and obviously shooting the movie last summer and reshoots and, you know, just kind of involved with the whole thing beginning to end. Um, and, and I'm excited to see what the world thinks. Like it's, it's, it's been a gargantuan project, obviously. Um, and, and I'm excited. I think Malcolm D. Lee, our director is doing some amazing stuff and it's just kind of cool to like bring the Looney Tunes back into the public eye. I think they've been gone for far too long and we've missed them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. Now to our final five questions. So Sav, what's the first film you've ever made and how do you feel about it now? Like I said, first film I ever made was my big fat Armenian family. It is a semi-biographical movie about my own life, my family, and I love it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? It's not about who you know. It's about who knows you. So focus less on networking and focus more on producing good work because that'll be the best way that you will get known. Oh, this is my earlier questions too. So I'm glad we have it. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? And my, um, my, I'm just going to tell you what I think your answer is just to see if it is, if I'm right. Um, total industry dominance. <laughs> no way. Um, man, this is, I, 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 this probably sounds so cheesy. I don't really have a goal right now. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, stay afloat on what we're working on right now. I feel like in a lot of ways, really lucky that I think everything I'm working on now is probably what, I wish I could have been working on as a kid. So, so far, so good. Just, you know, keep, keep it going right now, I guess. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Man, in film school, there was a weekend where a bunch of my friends are going to go to Vegas for no reason for 24 hours. And I did not go because I wanted to stay back and work on a pitch or something. I'm like, damn, I wish I went to Vegas. Because <laughs> I think that would have probably helped my life more than that pitch I developed. <laughs> wow <laughs> i like want to press that because we have a few minutes is it's a good answer but um in general you feel pretty good about the decisions you've made it sounds like other than this one vegas trip yeah <laughs> so cool. far yeah i mean I, I i stand by the decisions at least but yeah amazing is making movies hard absolutely hard it's so so hard but so rewarding so it's worth it Oh man, we still had time left. I cut to I these questions too soon. Well, because usually people pontificate for out like minutes, oh, man. Minutes, I feel like I'm... minutes on these questions. <laughs> Dude, Ulrich, I feel like I've been pontificating on all the other questions. So I was trying to at least go faster here. I'll, I'll pontificate more on the next one. Well, okay, well, we're done with those, but I, I have okay. another question I could throw in. Is that okay, sure. Ulrich? I mean, I'm just going to do it. Okay. Would you ever go back to micro budget knowing that you've built a career like you have leveraging all these projects to bigger and bigger? Could could you ever go back? I would. Yeah. Um, I would probably, you know, to be, to be really frank with you guys, like I know we're spending so much time talking about this Armenian movie of mine, but it, it was like very much a cult classic. 
and it inspired like a weird generation of Armenians. Cause you know, Armenians are so much like so many immigrants, like you're either a doctor or a lawyer or you're a failure. And like, I'm a failure um, by being, by being a filmmaker. And like, it was amazing. Cause there was this one kid who like loved that movie so much. He like lived in my neighborhood. He was always following up, asking for advice. And I would always, you know, spend time sending him emails and stuff, little Armenian kid. Then when I, I ended up teaching at USC for a couple of years as an adjunct professor, to my surprise, he was in my class, like that same kid. And then when I was working on Space Jam and Run, that same kid, I, you know, I, I threw him a couple bucks here and there. He would come do errands for us and runs for us. And he's become like really well known in the Armenian community as like a really funny comedian. And I was like, dude, like, do you want to just write and direct and star and, and you know, my big family family too? And he was like, dude, Yeah. And I made that movie for 800 bucks. And I was like, you know what? I might just give the guy at least a couple thousand of my own money and like, you know, help EP that and oversee that and just, you know, help it come full circle. But yeah, on a micro budget level outside of that, I certainly would always be willing to do that. It just, for me, has to be like the right circumstances. Like I, you know, I had so many relationships with financiers who just did not give us enough money. And it was always like pushing us to like make compromises and I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't ever want to do that again, you know? So to me, it's like, if it's truly something that can be made responsibly on a micro budget level, hell yeah. You know, like count me in because at my core, I still feel like I'm that indie producer. And like, when I worked on these bigger movies, there's initially a little bit of insecurity of like, Oh, I'm like the indie guy. Like I'm not the guy that knows how to make these huge multi-million dollar movies. But the lesson that I've kind of walked away from on this side of things is like, man, like being the indie guy is kind of the cool position to be. Cause like, we tend to be really problem solving and solution oriented. And, you know, so I think, you know, out of respect for where I came from, 100%. That's wonderful. So we have more time. So I have another question I wanted to ask um, earlier, but this is basically, you mentioned it a little bit, like going from um, being an indie producer and then getting searching and then becoming the lead producer on that film. I wanted to like hear about the difference of being in the PGA and not in the PGA. Like, is it just a title? Like does thing, do things change in your process as a producer when you go to that level or is it just the same, but bigger? Man, there's a lot of misconceptions about the PGA. And I think that sounds like one of them. And it sounds like a misconception that I had. When you are a writer and you join the Writers Guild, you are a member of a guild. You get health insurance. You have all sorts of protections that come with that. Same with the DGA. The PGA as a member means nothing. It means you're probably paying about five to $800 a year and you're getting DVDs at the end of every year and you get to join workshops and stuff like that. It has nothing to do with your on-screen credit being a member of the PGA. What affects your on-screen credit as a member of the PGA is not being a member. At the end of every movie, when you're getting close to you know wrapping your edit, you submit your movie to the PGA and they do this process in which they ask all the producers who have capital P credits to write essentially essays of everything you did on the movie. They send a multiple choice thing. Did you help raise the money? Did you help develop? Did you help do this? It's a whole process. Then they send the same kind of documents to your director, your writers, your studio executives, your DP, your PD, your editor, and everyone has to pretty much rat on which producer actually did their job and which producers had the credit and did nothing. And they determine based on all of that, who gets the PGA mark. So like searching as an example has four name producers, uh, myself, Natalie Kasabian, you know, my wife and producing partner and uh, Timur Bekmamatov and Adam Sidman. And the PGA determined after doing a conclusive study of everyone's essays and stuff that Natalie and I got the PGA mark and Timur and Adam in that movie's case didn't. And, and that was because Timur, you know, helped the movie by financing it and putting his name on it. And Adam was, you know, represented from the press company who wasn't as heavily involved 
in the day-to-day -day and creative stuff on that film. So that's really all that is. Um, joining the PGA doesn't change you in any way, doesn't give you access to anything. It's a helpful network of like-minded people that can provide you know, support and resources, but it's not at all the same as joining the, you know, there's nothing to celebrate by being a member of the PGA, whereas on celebrating DGA or WGA, you're probably celebrating getting health insurance, which is no small thing in this country, obviously, but PGA does not give health insurance. So, so, um, can you get a PGA credit without being in the PGA? I did. Yes. Oh, interesting. I did on, yes. on speed of life. And so did my producers and they're not in the PGA. And then like, would you, would you always just send your movie into the PGA to get this, this thing, ha you know, this, whatever, like, uh, yeah, it, co it costs nothing. And it's really designed if you have like 20 producers. So you know that who gets to go on stage to win the Oscar. Um, it's and also, it looks cool. And it looks cool. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why we did it. So, so your advice to me as a, a filmmaker who just is about coming out with my first feature is to just send it into the PGA when it's done and get this fancy thing on yeah. there. Awesome. I mean, I, I, I'm going to be really honest with you guys. I stopped paying my membership dues on for the PGA because I couldn't really justify spending hundreds of dollars to get DVDs at the end of every year. You know, <laughs> I just couldn't. I mean, no, no disrespect to the PGA. I love being a part of it. It's just, you know, trying to be a sensible producer here. <laughs> awesome. I did not know all this. So thank you. <laughs> Maybe Liz no did, problem. but I, I did not know. <laughs> not that much. Sev, thank you so much for... Yeah just sharing your time and your energy and your awesomeness with us. Um, that's my genuine thought. And then my second thought is we want to, um, what is it? Sell your wares. Tell us where people could find you. Tell us um, the exact perfect way to watch Judas, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, Ooh, whatever you want. Look, Judas and the Black Messiah is available to watch on HBO Max for 30 days starting February 12th. Highly recommend you watch it. Our soundtrack is now also available starting February 12th. Uh, with songs by Jay-Z, Nipsey Hussle, her. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, my company, Proximity, helped produce it. And lastly, if you're into podcasts, which I suspect you are, check out the Judas and the Black Messiah official podcast that we helped produce, which stars Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., son of the character that Daniel Kluya plays in real life, who talks about his fight to preserve his father's legacy while making the movie with us. It's crazy fascinating. Multiple episodes starting... February 12th. And you can find me online at Sevahanyan. All right. Thank you guys so much. This is so fun. I love the questions. Amazing. Thank you, Sev. We'll talk to Thank you soon. Sev. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. All right. So, Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Sev? What was like the highlight for you of this conversation? So, I met Sev at USC Film School, and he was just this really intense guy who always, I worked in the physical production office and I worked at the student production office as well. And he would come in and get foreign signed. And he was just one of these like really busy producers, but I had no idea like the potential, right? It's like, he's just this cool guy who always said hi, who always seemed like he was busy, but then you just look at his career and he's just taken off. So I guess, um, it was just this wonderful nostalgic moment for me to watch him and get to interview him and just be really impressed by him. But um, what I remember about the interview is his intensity and his ability to like impart 17 points of a story in like a paragraph of talking. <laughs> like he was just like, and he said like a joke about how he's undiagnosed ADHD, um, but he's just like so whip smart and so intense that um it's really fun to just watch him go. So I remember that. 
Do you, what do you remember? Well, like how well-spoken he was, which is kind of speaks to what you were talking about. He pitched us run like he had pitched it to investors four years ago or whatever, you know, like in, on the show, which I thought was like really impressive. I don't know if I could pitch the alternate so well right now. And that was only like two years ago. Um, and then uh, the whole feedback session that he does for his work with his partner and the way that he um, structures getting feedback from um, his uh, colleagues, that to me was really impressive. And the amount of organization that he goes, that he puts into that process, I thought was amazing. It's, it's almost like the kind of organization I, I put together for my, my uh, you know, post-producing in the commercial world and the corporate world and the way that I interact with clients on that side, except more detailed than that even. You know? um, so it was, that was really struck me and was something that I think I would like to do um, more of in my feedback and like be more specific with um, my asks of people. Because while I got really great feedback on my script and on the movie in post, um, I feel like asking some more like leading questions the way that he does would be really helpful. He even shared his screen. So like you'll even get to see in, in the video version of the show, like like how he does it and what it looks like is pretty incredible. So that, that was really a huge takeaway. And, and, and plus just like, I don't know. He's like the model of like what success means to me in a lot of ways. You know, it's like you can't really get more uh, successful than that. Like, you know, going into making a Marvel show, like having all the success with all these other films and getting to help make Space Jam. It's like, you know, dude, like, what are you talking about? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just like, I kind of want to be more like Sev is what I'm getting at. I want to be more organized. I want to be more clean cut. I want to be more well-spoken. I want to be more confident, like all those things I want to take from my, our conversation with him and put into my own life, into my own filmmaking, you know? I love that. Well, I also was just thinking about how, you know, this is his job, like so his full-time job is producing and writing and making movies. And I was just thinking like all the stuff he's been able, he's so prolific, but then also like he's built a career where he can actually spend his entire day concentrating on making movies. So whether it's working with Coog on the production company or it's, you know, writing a script with Anish, I think is his writing um, slash writer, director, partner. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's really cool about it too. We talked to a lot of filmmakers who have side jobs or, you know, a, a spouse that's rich or, you know, all these different things and means of support, um, as Dan Mervish says, Mary Rich. Uh, but, you know, talking to someone who's day to day is actually filmmaking. That was really interesting, too. Yeah. And I think we've been lucky that we've had a few people recently who have versions of that where like filmmaking is the yeah. number one and then maybe they do other things if they have to, but like they mainly film, do filmmaking. But yeah, I mean, I mean, that's also part of what I want, you know, in, in replicating uh, Sev, it's like, yes, so I can get well, to the Well, you place do that. Where... Your day-to-day -day is filmmaking, right? Well, I mean, that's your... Well, I have a job as a, as a post producer. So I, I, I post produce um, on these long form content, um, you know, videos, uh, mainly for investors, um, for startup companies and companies. That's kind of like my day to day. But um, but it's storytelling. You know. And it's like you're constantly working that muscle of like, how do you organize yeah. the production? And how do you contribute yeah. to the creative fields. I mean, I'm really lucky that like for the last, um, I don't know, 10, maybe even 12 years now, like all I do is video related. So whether it's, um, you know, working on a set or 
making a corporate video or editing or shooting or whatever, it's something video related. Like I haven't had to do a non-video job um, since I was a bouncer <laughs> or, or a salesperson working at LensCrafters. So like those are the last day jobs I've had. And that was like, you know, over a decade ago. So um, yeah, it's pretty great to just be able to do that, you know. But that's you too, though, right? Like you're doing creative consulting and filmmaking day to day. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I've always since film school, I've always done it. But I but freelance is a little bit different. Like since I've gone freelance, it's a little bit of a different world, right? You don't always know the consistency of what right. you're working on. You don't really know like what you're devoting your time to every day. But I think that's there's a key in there. It's like if there's a way to kind of make yourself a regular schedule of like when you're going to clock time just for you and the creative mm, process and it right. sounds like sev is pursuing that with intensity like he was a little bit shy about wanting to write when he talks about that and it seems like right now it's like he's going full force into being in addition to being a great producer also being a great um I don't want to say storyteller because a producer is a storyteller, but a, but a writer. Yeah. Well, it seems like at the same time, it feels like he's also doing the same thing where he's juggling. Like he's got like his, his writing and his, his, his feature work that he does. And then he's like EPing on these movies and things. And then he's like probably developing other projects like the Marvel show, you know, and, and other films. All right. We're all juggling. You're right. Like, (laughs) but, but the fact, the thing that's different between him, but from him and me at least, but almost, I think you and him are probably closer in, in a lot of ways is that it's all narrative based. Like there's no corporate, there's no commercial, there's no other things getting in the way. It's all storytelling. It's all narrative. Um, which is like kind of where I wish I was. Um, and I will be one day, I think, you know, so, um, well, yeah. It looks like for Seb, it's working out for me. It's like still a grab bag of confusion <laughs> and <laughs> instability. So we'll see. Right, right, exactly. But Liz, uh, do you have something for us today? Maybe? Oh, is this Bill? <laughs> or is this Get Shorty? <laughs> Get Shorty. Oh, my favorite movie from when I was t- 12. I have a Get Shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So this week for Get Shorty, we have a very different type of film, a short documentary all about the Buffalo called Where Buffalo Roam from filmmakers Larry Laverty and previous guest slash host and friend of the show, Isaac Pingree. Well, that's cool. Isaac's nice. Um, so... Uh, without further ado, let's hear from the filmmakers and why they made the short and how they did it. All right. Well, thank you, Arik and Liz, for uh, having Larry and I on to talk about our short documentary, Where Buffalo Roam. So I figured I would just ask Larry the questions you sent us and then maybe throw my two cents in as we go. So first question, uh, Larry, why, uh, why do you want to make this a short film as opposed to any other medium or length? Uh, There's a couple of reasons for that. One is with the attention span of the average person, uh, I wanted to keep it as short as possible, yet uh, get as much information that might pique somebody's interest to support the efforts to save the buffalo up around Yellowstone. Yeah, exactly. Okay, why this story, the story of the buffalo? Uh, For me, the buffalo have been with me all my life, and uh, I've cared about them deeply, and they they need attention. They need good, loving attention. They don't need the attention that they've been getting for years from the traditional attitudes that exist from cattle ranchers 
up there in Montana. And how did uh, how did we come up with the funds for this movie? Uh, I've I had it in the bank, and I I made sure that I had it in the bank to uh, to get this story out. So yeah, and I think what I would add to that is that you know, like most short films, are funded by the fil- out of pocket by the filmmaker, and so it was great that. Uh, Larry could fund this movie. And I think a couple of things worked our advantage was this was something we made during shelter in place. And we had, we didn't film anything new. So it's all just stock footage, which has its own cost associated with licensing it, but it's still cheaper than if we had to put a whole crew together and pay everybody a day rate and, and go film all these things. And then just like everyone, right. We have connections from, from working in this field so we can get, friend rates from the small post-production crew that we had. And uh, a lot of the historical footage, good tip for uh, people maybe who don't know this, is from the Library of Congress, which keeps an amazing archive of art and photos and sound and all kinds of stuff. And it's all free um, thanks to our tax dollars. All right, next question. Uh, Before making the short, what did you think would happen because of it or what were you hoping what it would do for your career uh this this is not a career uh project this is this is a labor of love for a subject that i care deeply about that being the buffalo and so it's a it's a means of communication of getting the word out and so i'm grateful that the medium of film exists and that we have the internet by which we can share these projects that's that's it. It's it's my my career is a conservationist is established. It, this is this is a tool. I guess for my career, I was really happy Larry asked me to collaborate with him on this, and I hadn't made a movie completely with existing footage ever before, and so it's just one. You know, my career goal is just to create a body of work that I'm proud of, and this is you know certainly part of that. I'm gonna skip ahead real quick because this is related. I think one exciting thing career wise was it's the biggest name that I have had the opportunity to work with, which is Peter Coyote doing the narration. So that was Ark's last question here is how did we get Peter Coyote to, to narrate this movie? Yeah, that was, uh, I went back and forth. I thought I'll, I'll just narrate this myself since I have experience narrating quite a bit in the corporate world and, uh, and also in some feature films, uh, with narratives. And I thought, uh, I sound, acceptable, but uh, I think I could take it up a notch if I got a familiar voice that people knew of. And through that familiar voice, then win a few more audience uh, members support. So I just, uh, I went through friends and and uh, a number of friends who knew Peter and uh, that was, wasn't getting anywhere. So I just went to his agent then at that point and uh, through the standard route, all the pieces fell together, including the recording studio where he recorded the narration. Right. And I know Ark has talked about this a lot on the show, um, you know, and trying to get actors um, uh, that, you know, back when he was reaching out to big names and, uh, you know, if you make an offer to a, to an actor, uh, their, their agent is obligated to share it with them. And, and, you know, a voiceover actor like Peter Coyote is looking for work. And I think he gave Larry a, a fair deal on this, gave us a fair deal, but still, uh, you know, it was a good good hour of work for him too. And I think that's all we have time for, but can I just throw in a little more about how we did the, the Peter Coyote thing was because of COVID, we couldn't work with him in person, but he picks his own audio engineer. 
and you have to book that studio and that audio engineer and 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 that audio engineer Stephen Barncard was was well set up for Zoom and had a video camera in the sound booth. So Larry and I logged on to Zoom like this, and um, you know there's a chest up shot of Peter Coyote right there, and you know we had an hour to to give him direction. Not that he needed a whole lot, and 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 record it, and then they just sent us the file. I will say that it's it's critical in life whether you're talking the documentary world or the feature world or short world of narratives that you do something you care deeply about. Your story triggers your heart. It's 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 not just an exercise because from that place of loving your subject matter, great things can happen. Cool. So thanks again, Liz and Ark, for having us on, and uh, we hope your audience will. Uh, We'll go find this uh, short. Just search uh, Buffalo Peter Coyote on YouTube or where Buffalo Rome. Auric, what did you think about where Buffalo Rome? So, you know, Isaac and I are friends on top of, you know, him being part of the show and everything. So I got to see a little bit uh, of how the sausage was made on this one. I, I watched early cuts. Um, I was kind of involved in um, hearing about like how the movie was coming together. Like originally, Larry was the voiceover um, artist um, who did the work, you know, the, the narration of the whole piece. Um, and, you know, as you see in the video, Larry is a very passionate person. He's also an actor. Um, and he's also a professional uh, voiceover uh, narrator as well, you know, in his acting work. Um, so when he did the narration, there was times where it sounded like he was about to cry because the Buffalo are so important to him. And it's like, you know, you'd hear like little parts of his voice and it was like, it made you cry too. Um, and so when they brought Peter Coyote in, who's this famous voiceover uh, narrator who does uh, all Ken Burns' films and a bunch of other really amazing films. Um, I was like, well, is this gonna be a good idea? And then I watched the final with Peter Coyote and it's like, okay, yeah, Peter's got it too, obviously. <laughs> and he hit some of those same notes. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, the thing that I've been like not thinking about with this movie the whole time is is like, well, would this have been better if there were interviews, if there was more captured footage for this piece? Because I think I always knew that it was only going to be like stock footage, art, historical footage and a, and a narration. And that was all this movie was going to be from the beginning. So I never really thought about it in those ways. But um you know, having watched it a bunch of times now, it's like, would it be better with interviews? Like, I, I'm not sure if, if that would make it better. Um, but would it have been better if they actually got to go to Yellowstone and film the Buffalo? Probably, yeah. I mean, if there was some actual Buffalo footage like that they had shot from Yellowstone, I think a lot of the stuff that there is in the movie is Buffalo from Yellowstone. They might be from other places too. But, um, you know, I think that might've added a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, is there anything else they could have done with the resources to make this movie better? I don't think so. I basically feel like this movie is the best version of this kind of movie that it could possibly be, like taking all those pieces, you know? Um, and I mean, like when <laughs> you see the, the, the stack and stack of buffalo bones, you know, in that one photo, like in the middle of the film, it's like I cry almost every time. It's so heartbreaking to see the amount of death and killing that went on um of this of the species man it's crazy um but yeah lastly my, my, and i'll end with a question to you liz is like like what do you think like do you think like having peter coyote narrate this movie do you think that makes it like 
does that does that mean anything to you it's like oh narrated by peter coyote i better watch it or to you is it just like who cares like i don't know who that is well i certainly think that his like following is an older audience but i do think that this is a short for an older audience so i think it's a really good smart choice for a narrator in terms of distribution obviously anyone with any kind of name value is always helpful i wouldn't say it's like if you had lebron james do this it would have been better for the film <laughs> but like ultimately <laughs> peter coyote makes a really good sense for that uh, sense for the audience and for what this is um, okay, so I totally agree with everything you're saying, but I have to acknowledge one thing because knowing what I do about distribution and programming and festivals, this is exactly, it's that like Ken Burns aesthetic. It's that old school way of doing a documentary. So I completely agree that it's like the best version of what you can do with stock footage and VO and you know, these historical stills. But I have to say that films like this face an uphill battle when it comes to festivals at the very least, because doc programmers are like, I'm tired of that shit. I don't want any, I don't want any of that like PBS, like, let me just stare at the Ken Burns zoom in, zoom out thing. They're really, there's like actually a discrimination towards those titles in festivals right now where they think of that as real archaic. Um, and so it's a shame, but this film certainly has an audience, could be used for educational distribution, could be used, you know, for people who love history. I'm not the audience for this, even though I'm like a vegetarian person who loves animals, but I tune out when I'm looking at archival footage and stuff. I just like, I go somewhere else, but that photo really got me and then when they got into the more modern footage of the um of the men of the men routing the buffalo into the into the pens and on their way to the slaughterhouse i was i perked it piqued my interest again right because it felt more relevant to me um but i would say i mean i can't i'm not saying anything new it's just like i think it's a shame that programming doesn't allow a space for this type of content, but there's a whole subset of like colleges and universities and nonprofits who could use something like this. And, and it's a good version of that. Do you feel like putting it out online on YouTube was the right move, like to get it out into the world this way and like just release it? Or do you think that there was a better way to distribute this kind of documentary? It really depends on like Larry and Isaac and how much time they want to devote to this. I was listening to the Camille Brown episode, you know, just like an hour ago. And she was saying, you know, like, I just want to put things out and move on to the next. And I think a lot of filmmakers just want to do that. They just want to move past their work. This would have been a smart move. An alternate move would have been to approach colleges, universities that have programs in Native American studies or, um, ecological programs or environment. I mean, you know, going the way of like um, agriculture or Native American or, um, you know, indigenous people, like there's various different sub themes in this film that you could go after in terms of educational programming. But um, I think that what I would encourage the filmmakers to do is promote like hell now that is on YouTube, right? And like make sure every tag that you can have in terms of metadata is there and then reach out to nonprofits, to animal rights organizations, to museums. I think 
looking at something like Western museums would be really smart to incorporate into this release strategy. But that takes like months, if not years <laughs> of your life away from you. So going on YouTube is fine, but, um, you know, I'm, I, I saw the number of subscribers that Larry had and I saw the number of views that this film has. And I think it's because the audience for something like this isn't an audience that trolls YouTube, you know, or if they do, maybe there's a way to find them a little bit better. I don't think there's any reason why they couldn't do all the educational stuff and the nonprofit stuff now, even though it's released, right? Well, the goal is to do it before it's accessible, because what are you offering when mm -hmm. it's on YouTube? Because that the idea is like to license it and be like, hey. What's up? I got money. this movie. It's unavailable right. anywhere else. You can get me in the package deal. I just summed up impact distribution in like a silly voice, but that's like exactly <laughs> what it is. And um, yes, you can definitely go to those nonprofits and say, please use my film. You know, you don't have to license it. Just please use it. We want it to get out there. And if you right. want to bring me in to talk about how I made it, then um, please do. Yeah, because I, I think the thing for, for Larry in having watched his answers and everything and just knowing him, is that uh, he doesn't care about making any money on this. He just wants as many people to see it as possible. And so that's why he put it online was to just kind of get it out there. And that's also why he didn't want to wait for film festivals because he just wanted to, to like show it to the world Smart. and get people to watch it, you know? Um, so I think like he'll probably listen to this. Well, I know he'll listen to this and I'm sure he's gonna, he, he'll probably take this advice because I'm pretty sure Larry is willing to put in this kind of time to get the movie out there. There's nothing more important to him in the world than um, animals, um, you know, buffalo, elephants. And I mean, it's like, it's like really, really important to him. Um, so I'm sure he'll, everything you just said, I'm sure he's writing down, taking notes and just kind of well, go out and do Larry, it. Larry, you can feel free to email me and I'll, I'll work with you pro bono with some ideas. And I'm just thinking right now, the Gene Autry museum, I would, I would approach them. I would, you know, I went, I spent every birthday going to animal sanctuaries. So it's like, you know, there was a wolf sanctuary. There's, um, you know, there's, I mean, again, they, they suffered a lot in the pandemic, you know, but there are lots of animal sanctuaries in Los Angeles area in Los Angeles County and slightly outside that might want to play this video if for people who come in person. I'm just, there, there are some ways to collaborate with others. And I'm happy to chat with you about that if that sounds fun. Wow, that's awesome. I hope everyone liked this movie. I'm, I'm curious. I, I really hope that people jump onto our YouTube channel or even Larry's YouTube channel and leave comments about this. I'd love to hear what people think. Like, do you agree? Like, do you tune out when you see all these like art historical images or whatever, or are you brought in? Like for me, like the images and the art are really striking. And so like- But you I'm, like history. I mean, slight, slightly more than the average person. I do like older things. I do like historical things. Like I like um, lots of old movies, you know? So I feel like maybe that's the end point for me, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious. What do you guys think? Are you in or are you out? Um, but I think without further ado, uh, Liz, you've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So before we get into the actual mail, I want to do something special. I mean, this is episode 300. I mean, holy shit. This show has been going on for a goddamn long ass time. Liz has been here for over a year now doing this with me every week. 
Um, so I feel like we should do something that we don't normally do. And, you know, we, we used to do five questions at the end of the show, um, you know, eons ago, I think back in the around the 200s or late, late hundreds. No, not even 200s. This is back with Timothy. So this was like probably like 130 or so we used to do this. And even on your episode, Liz, we might have asked you five questions, which weren't these five. It was like a different five. But I thought it'd be fun for us to um, ask each other these uh, final five questions that we ask guests every week. So Liz, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, um, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? All right. So I was thinking about this and the one that I immediately thought of is in college, I took my video camera that I brought to college and I took my friends, Amanda and Peter, and we were in St. Louis and we went to like five different locations in the middle of the night in St. Louis. And I had them reinterpret a very esoteric monologue from Ben-Hur. Um, and it's all about the Valley of the Lepers. And I don't know why. I have no idea why I chose this. And we went to... Um, you know, we went to a diner and we went to an abandoned train station and we went to like a weird Paul Bunyan statue. Um, we turned it into a dialogue scene. I was like, I'm so clever and creative. Anyway, I submitted it. I edited it together myself and I submitted it to one film festival in Canada called Images. I don't even know if it exists anymore. We got rejected and I really took it quite hard. <laughs> that images film festival rejected us. I also, you know, looking back on it, it's like, there's probably rights issues. It didn't make a lick of sense. I think I submitted it to the experimental section, which again, I don't know if this is an experimental film. Um, anyway, I feel pretty proud that I had the gumption to do this ridiculous thing. Um, and I have it somewhere and, um, I think my friends would have been willing to make a lot more movies because my friend Peter is an improv comedian, but I was so shy after that rejection. Sorry. I'm like all our guests where I just monologue for two minutes after one of these questions. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Um, so what's the be best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I don't have a lot of people that have given me advice, but I was thinking I scheduled some time with Kat Candler who directed Hellion because I met her through like a panel once and she gave me an hour and it was very generous of her and I was like oh I'm thinking of doing this and I'm thinking of doing that and she said follow the fun and so that's been my mantra ever since is that if it's fun because we don't make a lot of money right as filmmakers unless you're doing these tentpole films unless it's fun don't do it so that's my advice that I'm following right now and um do you have a goal as a filmmaker. Yeah, I want to be asked to panels or asked to speak or brought on jobs as a director because of being an artist and not um, because I'm a distribution expert. Like I would love to be invited to more panel. I would love to be thought of in that way. I think I've developed a certain level of cachet and have brought into been brought in to speak or mentor or consult a lot. But like what I really want is to make movies all the time and take the knowledge that I have and apply it to the movies that I make. So my goal is to, you know, be thought of as an artist rather than um, this weird hybrid career that I've created for myself. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Contracts. Don't <laughs> do anything without a contract. And I am suffering because of that right now. 
And uh, I won't go into it, but I will just say that um, you may think that the person you're working for or with is just the most wonderful human on earth, you know? And you might think, ah, we don't need to sign anything. That's crazy. We'll ruin something if we sign it. Um, sign it. Sign it immediately. Sign it before you get started. Sign a contract. Um, side note, I took your advice. I'm starting a project with a partner and I called him last week after we talked and I was like, are you open to signing a contract? And then he thanked me for suggesting it and said that it was a great idea. And no matter how good of friends we are, that we totally should do that. And then I was tasked with writing the contract and then I haven't done it yet, but I will. So um, thank you for that advice. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and final question, is making movies hard? <laughs> yes, it's very hard. And I find it very scary, actually. I find being on set very scary. It's very difficult. And I think a lot of people will misinterpret cautiousness and anxiety as I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say like, it's very, very scary and you have to be super strategic, but if you don't just do it, you'll never do it, right? So take your time, check your temperature, but at a certain point, you're going to have to push yourself or someone's going to have to push you off that cliff. Um, so it's very scary, but it's possible. Auric, ha 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 I get to ask you now, Auric. I get to ask you. Get ready. Get ready. What's ready. up? What's up, Ulrich? Um, what's the first film you ever made? How do you feel about it now? Okay. So um, I, there's been a lot of like things I would call first film, you know, because there was times where I was less serious and more serious. And, you know, this happened multiple times throughout my filmmaking life, but I figured I'll just talk about the very first one. So I was in high school. I had access to a camera with my buddy uh, Perry, who we went to this this we took this course together. I think we were either sophomores or juniors in high school, and um, yeah, we were like, okay, let's make a movie together. Let's just do it. And so we came up with this idea, and um, it basically a story about a guy who is getting ready for what looks like to be a football game. He's got his jersey on. He's in the locker room. He's he's pumping himself up. We had you took the Monday night football theme, um, you know, ripped it and used that as the background music. We made a dolly out of, um, I think a skateboard or some sort of, some sort of thing that we had at the school. I can't remember what it was, but we, 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 we had a little dolly shot to open the piece. I started it. I had, I played football. So I had my football jersey. So that was like our little bit of like, you know, whatever realism that we could bring into it. Um, and then we had a friend who had a cougar um, muscle car uh, that was like her dad, either her dad or her dad gave to her. I don't even know how she got this pristine, amazing vintage car, but it was incredible. And so what we did was it was like, okay, this pump up, pump up. He's going to go to this thing. He walks out of the locker room, then he walks away from the field and he walks somewhere else. And then it turns out he's going to uh, ask this girl out on a date. Um, and that's like Aww. the twist flip. And he approaches the girl who's like sexually standing, um, you know, next to her, her, her muscle car. And then he like gets all nervous. And we had a close up shot of me fiddling with my jersey and then, you know, ask the question. And uh, that was my first taste of filmmaking. Um, and, you know, Perry and I edited it together on Final Cut Pro. And it was, uh, you know, shot on mini DV with those little tapes. It, it was really fun. And, um, 
that movie, I, I had put some other movies from high school online on my YouTube page. Uh, so you could actually see like the next movie we made after that. But that one is not online. And I don't know why. I think it was, I can't remember why I didn't put it up. But uh, anyways. Uh, get, it see, <laughs> get it up. I'll find, I know I have it. I'll find it. Maybe I'll, I'll upload it after this. Um, but yeah, that's the first one. And how do you feel about it now? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I still feel fondly that like we did that. And you know, I used to think I wanted to be an actor. Um, and like, I think in that short, I, I'm probably better than in most other things I'm in. Uh, there's another movie that, I, that I'm that i in that me and my, my friend Perry made that <laughs> I think my performance is less good. So anyways. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? So I've gotten a ton of amazing advice. I mean, geez, after doing this show for 300 episodes, um, but rather than quoting something that someone said to me on the show, I decided to pick something from um, a film I worked on. Uh, as we've talked about briefly on the show, I worked on Francis Ford Coppola's Twixt. I knew, uh, I knew you were going to say this. I knew it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> so I don't know if I've ever told you this story. I think I told Timothy maybe, but um, one day uh, either at lunch or something, Francis is there with us and he used to sit and eat lunch with the crew every day because he's just a sweet guy. Um, and someone asked him, like, what would you say to young filmmakers who are trying to make a film or, you know, we want to all make movies. Like, what should we do, Francis? Um, tell us you're our God, you know? Um, and he was like, you know what? Find your oil well. He's like, look where we are. We're in this winery, we're in this vineyard. Um, I'm only able to make this movie because I've made a lot of money through my vineyard and licensing my name and making all these, these this business around wine, you know, and I started it in 1978. It didn't make any money until like 2000, but now it's like this whole business, you know? So whatever you do, like find some way to make money so you can make your own movies and not uh, have to rely on anyone else to tell your stories and you can have full control of what you do. And so that was, I think, some of the best advice I've got. And my dad told me the same thing, <laughs> which is really funny. You did share this story with me. It wasn't like oh, I uh, you, you shared it with me directly. You shared it on a show like months and months ago. And oh, I remember really? you talking about the oil. Well, Cause that's how I knew you were going to say it. Yeah. Oh, I, I, okay. I wouldn't know this story any other way. Well, sorry, everybody. It's not a fresh hot take. Like I thought it was. No, you gave the full story. It was like a little bit cut up last time. I think. Uh, okay. So it's okay. nice. Also, Francis is, I can't believe I just called him Francis. Francis for Coppola has got to be like the coolest person ever to just spend time with. Yeah, well, everyone calls him Francis. So like now I just call him Francis because when we work on that movie, it was like Francis this, Francis that. So anyways. It's like when I worked at Sundance, everyone called him Bob. And I'm just like, I can't call him Bob. Like I have not been and like there's no doorway that I went through where I can now call him Bob. Um, okay. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah. So I used to always just think that my goal was to make movies uh, as my full-time job and, you know, just do that only. Um, and it, it didn't really matter what kind of movies I was making, you know, um, because it's just as long as I got to make movies and tell stories as a filmmaker, that that's all that mattered. Uh, now I think I want to make movies that I care about, you know, and that actually have relevance, like, because you know, just getting hired to do anything, I don't think has as a, an interest to me. Like, um, what was I thinking about? I was thinking about like some, gosh, there was some, something was in my mind of like, oh, if you could just, oh yeah. <laughs> so it was our previous guest, Camille. And I was thinking like, oh, if I could make lifetime movies for the rest of my life, 
would I want to do that? Like, would I want to make a movie like a Christmas winter song? And I wouldn't. I don't think I would. But it's a Christmas movie, Alrek. I think you might have missed that point. It's a Christmas movie. Yeah, but it's like you look at that trailer and you can just see it's like there's all these things that you have to hit. It's all this 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 sort of like formula that you have to go with. And like, you know, like Santa Claus couldn't get into a battle with somebody at the end of the movie and like, you know, (laughs) have it out and get like you know shot up all to hell and be tons of blood and gore like the you know the Nelms Brothers film you know and it's like that's like if I was to make a Christmas movie it would be some version of that like there'd be some twist there'd be some sort of like darkness there'd be some sort of um takeaway you don't want to be creatively constrained right yeah I want to be able to take like my style and like what I like and put it into whatever I do and working for a lifetime or someone like that, you're not going to be able to do that. Like that's just, that's not the gig, you know? Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's not just good enough to make any movie anymore. It has to be something that matters, you know? Yeah. I hundred percent agree. If you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself? I, I would probably go back to when I was like, you know, 21, 22, like right when I was first working on movies, like I worked on two movies back to back, right as a, you know, right out of college. And I was talking about making a short film at that time. I was working with James Laxton, who now is a famous cinematographer of Moonlight and everything. And, you know, he like agreed to like shoot my first short when I was ready. And, uh, you know, like I waited too long. Like I didn't make my first short until I was like 27 or 28. My, my first real short, like with the budget and a crew and everything. And by that time he was, you know, like we, we weren't in touch anymore as much and he was all fancy and big time. And, you know, it wasn't appropriate for me to ask him. And so I lost that chance. So I think if I would to go back in time, I would have just started making movies a lot earlier and not worried about them because I was so worried about oh I don't have an experience like I don't know what I'm doing like oh I don't know how to make a movie like I gotta be on set more I gotta get like more background and and like I got that like I was on a ton of sets on a ton of movies and worked with a tons of crews and then like by the time I did direct my first a short film I had at least a little bit of better sense of like what a set looked like and how a set operated and what I wanted my set to be you know um, and I had the connections to make it happen like I, I knew enough crew people that I could like bring a team together um, with like almost no money and make it happen but I think I shouldn't have been worrying about that stuff I should have just start making movies right then when I was 22 just throw it all into it just do it you know um, and then also make features sooner <laughs> and not wait forever to make yeah. a feature. Cause I mean, I didn't, you know, it, it's now what, like over, uh, yeah, almost 15 years since I worked on that first movie with James and it's like, you know, it took me that long to make my first feature. It's like, shit, I should have been doing that. Like, you know, I should have made a short when I was 22 or 23 and then made a feature when I was like 26, like that should have been the progression, but yeah, all all in time. All all good things happen in time. I think hindsight, right? It's like you think, oh, if I started sooner, then I could be so much farther along by now. But like when we right. were in our early 20s, people were probably saying to us, I had someone say to me, first feature by 25. And I was mm. like, okay, <laughs> thanks so much. Okay. But I had no idea the first step, right? To even get to that point. So it's right. like maybe you could go back in time and then you could give 
yourself. Dan Mervish is the cheerful, subversive indie <laughs> filmmaker or something where it's like something that lays out because it's like, even I'm, I'm not trying to criticize your answer. You gave a great answer, but I'm also just thinking like as myself, even if someone said, just do it, Liz, just do it. Like I wouldn't have listened to that at all. I would have been like, right. you crazy. I'm going to live my life in my twenties and attempt to date boys. <laughs> um, so like, but, right. So it's like, there's something about gumption. Well, I never, like I, I was worried about like first film before 30 was like a thing for me for a while. Like I yeah. wanted to have my first feature before I was 30. And then at some point during the process, I just realized like, you know, like that's not what's important. It's, it's more important to make the first movie right and make, it the best that it can be and not worry about trying to do it fast, but rather come out with the first film that actually means something. And so that was sort of the decision I made like in my late twenties, you know, cause not to not push it and just to do that. And, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that is the right thing. Maybe that was what I needed. And that's the way I, I so. had to grow as a filmmaker. And that if I tried to make a movie when I was younger, it would have been a disaster. I'm, I don't know, you know, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the version of myself I wish I was. I wish I was the guy mm -hmm. who made features when I was in my early 20s and just like, you know, made a bunch, made mistakes, learned, made a bunch, made mistakes. And then like when I was 30, I had four features under my belt, like, um, you know, Emily um, Higgins? Higgins. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I feel like, you know, that's kind of what I would wish, had wished for myself as a younger person, you know? I get that. I do get it. I'm just trying to like rationalize that it's not wasted time. Um, uh, is making movies hard? Yeah, it's hard. And um, I think after making my first feature, it's a lot harder than I thought it was. Um, <laughs> Cause I always knew it was hard. And like, you know, I always would say, oh, making movies is hard. Like when I was, you know, after making my shorts and everything, but it became a whole new thing when I made my feature and it was, more difficult than I thought it was going to be on a personal level and, and an emotional level, you know, to get that film made. Um, but it was worth it. And there was a lot of joy in it. And I mean, I feel like one of the things about the alternate that I don't talk about a lot is besides like how hard it was for me, everybody else seemed to have a complete blast. And I talked to people <laughs> about that movie. They're like, oh yeah, it was awesome. Like I got to work with my friends. Like we made this cool movie, like, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, everyone's except me and maybe the production designer, like everyone else had a good time. <laughs> we were miserable. Everybody else was great, you know, um, but uh but yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging, but I think it's worth it. And it's so fulfilling and it's so much fun. And I think it's like it, the challenge to make a movie is is one thing, but the challenge to make a good movie is like, it's like this thing that like, I don't think anyone knows really the answer, right? Even the people who do it have done it and made the best movies don't even know. And I think like, that's what the things that's so exciting. It's like this mystery of like, how do you tell like the most amazing story that people are gonna react to or that is gonna like have impact? Like, we don't know, we all try and we sometimes we get there or sometimes people get there, but you know, it's just like this main, amazing, mysterious, powerful force. So I'm, I'm really excited to get the chance to keep trying to figure it out. <laughs> I was um, having like a mini breakdown last night. When I use the word breakdown, it's always an exaggeration, but I was having like a rant fest last night. <laughs> and I was thinking of all the guests that we've had who have made four, five, six features and they're not household names. And I was just like, how many films is it going to take? And I think once you hit that realization that um, you're not going, most likely you're not going to break out after a film. It is a 
lifelong long game. It is um, and as long as you're making content that makes you happy, it's that's like the vital aspect of it, right? Because um, it was just this weird reality check for me last night. I was like, well, I may just be this weird girl of mid-tier festivals for the rest of my life. And then you just have to ask yourself, like, will that make you happy? And if it makes you happy, then you're making movies for the right reasons, right? For the right, right. you're like The Bachelor, you're here for the right reasons. But <laughs> if you're not, you know, then it's like you start to evaluate, are you seeking fame? Are you seeking attention? Like, what is it that you're looking for? So yeah, it's this mystical force that pulls you in, but it also can manipulate, you know, whatever your true desires may be. So sometimes you got to figure that out a little bit. Sorry to get again, vague, um, on this podcast. Well, I mean, do you feel like you've figured out like what that is for you? Like, is it like, is there a part of it that you want this fame, you want this recognition, you want to be in this like echelon of filmmakers, or is it really that you just enjoy telling stories and you enjoy the act of creating a film, maybe not being on set part, but the, all the, cause that's the smallest part of making a movie. As we all know, it's like, the post part and the and the development is so much longer. So I don't know. Are you closer to an answer for yourself or? No, I don't think so. Cause it's like when people say, why do you want to be a filmmaker? I always tell this story about when I was 16, I saw this movie. And for some reason, it just struck me that I have to be a filmmaker. Right. And so it's like, when you have this blind faith in something, often you just are like, I'm so I'm so lucky. I have direction in life. I'm just going to follow that energy. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I would love to kind of unpack exactly what it is because I think the goal is always to make movies where there's flawed people in terms, I mean, like non-cookie cutter, non-model actor, like real people, real faces and get them on screen so that audiences feel a little more brought into the storytelling process, but I don't think that's enough to build an entire career. So I'm mm. still trying to figure out like, why? Why am I doing this you know, masochistic exercise <laughs> all the time? Why? When I could honestly be like in Alabama, living probably in a mansion, <laughs> like making way more money than I do doing something. Like I could go be a pharmacist. I could go to pharmacology school and live a good life, you know? So I don't, I don't know what it is yet. Um, and I'll probably listen back on this episode and be like, Liz, you're so silly. You know exactly why, but right now <laughs> you asking me, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's uh for me, it's just, it's just something I really enjoy doing. And I, I can't imagine not having something to be making, you know, like whether or not mm. I was, you know, getting paid to do it or having a budget or not, like, or even if I said, Oh, I'm going to give up this filmmaking thing. I'd probably still make a movie just for fun, you know, just because it's yeah. what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I think, yeah, for me, it's just, it's just the process of creating and like having a vision, like an idea in your mind of something that you want to see or like, or even watching a movie and, and like being excited and then like, Oh, they don't go in this certain direction that you were like, you thought they were going to go into. And you're like, ah, oh, I really wish I'd seen the, the version of this movie where they focused on this aspect of it. It's like, oh, well, I get to make that movie maybe one day, you know, instead like of of just wishing it existed. Like I can actually make it exist and, and maybe I'll like it as much as I as I would want to like it. Maybe I don't know. Or maybe somebody else will like it. Who knows? I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, for now, it's just something that I really like, I'll, like I'll never retire. Like even like if, if I retire from my day job, like in my sixties or seventies or whatever, like I'll, I'll always make movies, you know, cause it's something you can always do. Like you don't need to be a certain age to do it, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm really excited about my future as a filmmaker and to see like what I can, what I'll have the opportunity to make over the next whatever 40 years, 30 years, however many more years I have left making films. I'm, I love that. First of all, I just want to appreciate that for a second. I also want to acknowledge that like, I'm making a short, I'm writing a horror feature. Like I'm really, really <laughs> thrilled it. to do these things, but I don't know why. Like, that's what I'm having trouble is like, why, why am I doing it? But like, because I don't like being on set and I don't like a lot of the portions of filmmaking, but I agree. Like there's maybe it's just back to what you said. It's this weird, mysterious thing that pulls us in that feels incredibly gratifying when you're done. And you know, in my mind, it's like an image. Like, I just want to see this image come to life. It's one image right. per, per project. Right. And like mm -hmm. for the horror shirt, I have an image of Sean, my husband melting and like rotting and his face rotting. <laughs> and I just really want to see that, but maybe that's what it is. It's just bringing something literally to life that pulls us into this ridiculous game. Yeah. I like what you just said about the image. Cause I feel like it, for me, it also yeah. always starts with an image or multiple images mm -hmm. and what, like, you know, for the first like short that I call my first short strange thing, the one that I made when I, in my late twenties, that one, there's one image that I had originally in my mind that is in the movie. And it's not exactly like the image, but it's so close that it's like pretty much what I was going for. So that's really exciting. And I made it into yeah. one of the key art pieces because it was like, this is the movie to me. Um, the you core know. of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I, I love that. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. Like you're doing it. It's, it's Sometimes it feels like you're, you're making, you're actively making a movie, but sometimes it doesn't really feel like you're actively making a movie, you know? And yeah. it's fun that you just like could step back and be like, yeah, I'm actually, I've got a short that's coming out. I'm working on another short right now, you know, like you got tons of things going on. So it's, yeah. I don't know, but that's what, I think that's what a life of the filmmaker is. It's just always something going on in different levels, different stages. Oh, Oh, <laughs> um, I just to let you know off the record, I have to go at 12. So do you want to just oh. do the recap? Because it's already been yeah. almost an hour. Well, sorry, Gary Kennedy. You're not going to get to be on this episode. Ha <laughs> ha. You'll be on the next <laughs> one. Um, but uh, let's just go right into our, our, our ending stuff. Um, so, you know, if you like what you've heard in our, uh, you know, emotional talk today, uh, you can support the show by going on to Patreon at www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and give what you can. Thanks in advance. We've got some fun things, stickers, pins, etc. Um, if you want, you can also send a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, um, you know, and ask us whatever you want. We'll talk about it on the show. Literally anything but... I want to be on your podcast, we'll get on the show. So if you write anything besides just that, we will read it on the show because we just love to read what people send us. So uh, send that on over. You can also leave us a review on iTunes if you really like the show and you want to support us. That's a really, really important thing. We've gotten a lot this year, but we can always use more. Um, and finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is a Hard Podcast, where you can leave a comment like Gary Kennedy does every week. And until this week, we read them on every show. So uh, yeah, do that as well. 
Um, thank you for everyone for listening. Thanks to Sevohanian for being on this very special 300th episode. Wow. Um, to follow us on social media. Ulrich, where are you? I am at RFB on Twitter and Instagram. And Liz, me, I am at Liz Manichelle on Twitter. I am at 2002 followers. I've broken through. Uh, and I am uh, Liz Manichelle Film on Instagram. I also want to just name check Travis and Madison because we've been uh, saying their names at every single episode. And I think now it's just going to be Gary Kennedy, Travis and Madison. We just make sure we say their <laughs> names constantly. Right. Um, Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. And thank you to Editor Ulrich. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm. question mark. Yes, thank you. Thank you to Editor Ulrich for doing the editing um, and for founding this podcast, for letting me be on it, for being a part of 300 <laughs> motherfucking episodes. Holy shit. That is amazing. Uh, well done. Well, thank you, Liz, for joining me on this craziness and being my co-host um, for over a year now. It's been amazing. And thank you to everyone who's listened. I mean, I feel like we probably do have some listeners who have been listening for five years um, from way back in the beginning. Alex Kellerman, who uh, I think kind of maybe still listens. Lucas Colshaw, who I think probably still listens. These guys have been there since the very beginning. Um, there's probably some more that I'm forgetting as well. Um, but yeah, thank you all for listening and thanks to the whole community for supporting filmmaking podcasts and this podcast, you know, um, specifically. And, you know, we'll talk to you guys next week on episode 301. And let's get to our talk with Sev Ohanian. Did I do it right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Sev Ohanian. I mean, unless I've been saying it wrong for 10 years, that's his name. Well, I'll go with your 10 years of experience. <laughs> Me too. Oh, gosh. <laughs>